Hi, I'm Ollie Henderson, and this is After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. This is our final episode, so we decided to take our podcast to the pub. My name's Verity Firth. I'm the Executive Director of Social Justice here at UTS. And recorded live from the loft in Sydney on Gadigal land. We want to acknowledge, of course, that we're recording this live podcast on Gadigal land um, and pay respect to Elders past and present. and extend. We wanted to look at the unique opportunities and challenges of hashtag MeToo in the Australian context. Australia has some of the toughest defamation laws in the world. And in a he-said-she-said scenario, the onus rests firmly upon the accuser to back up their claims as truth, and the kind of truth that'll stand up in court. Can controversially operate as a sword rather than as a shield in respect of reputational protection. So where does this leave those alleging sexual harassment or sexual assault? And I'm very lucky to have today a very esteemed panel next to me. Uh, The first panellist I'd like to introduce is Sophie Dawson. Sophie Dawson is a partner in the international law firm Bird & Bird, who specialises in disputes work within the media, telecommunications and information technology sectors. Our next panellist is Jenna Price. Jenna Price is a Fairfax columnist and a senior lecturer in our journalism program at UTS. She's also co-founder of Destroy the Joint, an advocacy group fighting for gender equality and civil discourse. And last but not least is Noreen Young. Noreen Young is an industry professor of Indigenous workforce diversity at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research here at UTS. Our host, Verity Firth, from the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS, will be leading the discussion between experts and advocates to talk about how Me Too has taken form in Australia and the legal and social challenges unique to this country. A number of high-profile cases have been brought before the courts with the criticism that complainants of sexual harassment often end up being defendants as well as witnesses. Media outlets complain that Australia has the toughest defamation laws in the world and that these laws stifle freedom of the press and freedom of speech. On the other side, lawyers claim that unfettered freedom of speech causes damage too and not just to reputations. So we thought we'd begin today's panel by asking Sophie really to set the scene. Sophie, can you give us a short overview of what the case, what are the defamation laws in Australia and perhaps draw some comparisons between the state of our law and the state of some comparable overseas jurisdictions? Thank you, Verity. I'd be very happy to do that. To understand Australian defamation law, it's useful to think about it in two bits. First, there's the part that the plaintiff has to prove to establish a prima facie case. And to do that, you only have to prove three things. Firstly, that something's been communicated, that something can be communicated orally or by pointing at something or writing something on the internet or in a newspaper. There are, it doesn't matter how it's communicated. And then you have to show that the plaintiff has been identified. And it doesn't matter whether you intended to identify a person It's enough that they are identified. So there's a famous case involving multiple Detective Lees where um, a Detective Lee was defamed and there were multiple people of that name 
and those who were not intended to be referred to, in fact, successfully sued. And then the third element is defamatory meaning. And to establish defamatory meaning, you need to show that the ordinary reasonable reader or viewer would think less of the person defamed or would shun and avoid them. So it's pretty easy to establish a prima facie defamation claim. So the nub of defamation law is really in the defences. There are multiple defamation defences, but there are two that I think are of particular importance today. One of them is a common law qualified privilege, and that applies whenever you have a legal, moral or social duty to tell something to someone, and you tell the person whose job it is to deal with that communication. The most common example of that, and it's very relevant here, is when you report something to the police, even if you're wrong, so long as you're not acting maliciously, you're going to be protected by this common law qualified privilege defence. So it can be defeated by evidence of malice, but that's improper purpose. So for example, if you know that what you're saying is false, it can be defeated. But otherwise, it's pretty robust. And it's important for people to be aware of that defence in this context, because I know that because of these high publicised cases, some people might be worried about talking about sort of um, things that have happened to them. And they shouldn't have those worries about reporting them to the relevant people or getting the help that they need. The more complex issues arise in relation to the communications to the world at large, where that common law qualified privilege defence is not available. And that's where you need to look at more substantial defences, like, and the main one is substantial truth. And to establish truth, the defendant has to prove on the balance of probabilities that what they've said is true. And of course, in the Me Too context, Verity, that can be very difficult. Now, there are some important differences between Australian and US defamation law, which are relevant here. We all will have read multiple allegations about public figures in the US, which have been published and haven't been sued upon to the extent that we've seen in Australia. There's a case called New York Times and Sullivan, which took the US qualified privilege defence away from the Australian and UK equivalents by extending it in relation to public figures. So basically, in the US, if you're defaming a public figure, that public figure has to show malice um, in order to establish a defamation claim. Whereas here, public figures are treated just like everybody else. So if you, if you publicly defame a public figure in Australia, then if you've published it to the public at large, then you're really looking at truth or honest opinion or another defence which is more difficult to establish. We would assume these US cases um, have been able to do this is because simply the, the, the stick of the defamation law just isn't as strong in terms of public figures. That's exactly right. Yeah. Here we've got an implied constitutional freedom of speech in relation to government and political matters, but it's quite different to the US First Amendment, so it doesn't provide the same amount of protection. And of course, this is a whole separate conversation that we could have, but it's become very topical because now we're very much in a global media market and we're all consuming media on a global basis. And there are concerns about whether, as a country, our defamation laws are discouraging people from publishing here um, and encouraging them to go to more protected environments like the US. But as you've flagged, there are really difficult issues about um, civil rights which come into play and they're not easily resolved. Jenna, I wanted to talk to you about 
as a journalist, what impact do you think Australia's defamation laws have on coverage of sexual assault and, and for some of the activist groups that have arisen out of the Me Too movement? I mean, we all know, don't we? We all agree that it's really hard to say to someone, this person is sexually harassing me. It's hard to say that to the person who's doing it. It's hard to say that to their boss. It's almost impossible to say that to the police. So how else do you get some kind of protection and support unless you go to the media? But, of course, the media often can't publish. And, you know, there's been a tremendous chill this year because uh, in a particular case at the Sydney Morning Herald, the person who had a story written about them is now suing both the newspaper and the young woman who brought the complaint. So that's terrifying to her. And I have seen that since that publication, there's been so few stories written about sexual harassment. And you know that's got to be about the defamation laws. I mean, I think that um, it's, we've got to have a different kind of process here. We've got to be able to protect women. And, and we know, of course, already that women struggle to get the police to believe them. We know that in uh, cases like rape, there's only, for instance, a 3% conviction. So 100 women say they've been raped. Only three of those uh, perpetrators are convicted. So there's... A, a, I mean, I would say there's a real problem for supporting women in the legal system, and that is defamation laws, criminal laws across a range of areas. So, Noreen, you have worked in workplace diversity, and what has your experience been of dealing with women who are sexually harassed in the workplace? So, I've been at the coalface of sexual harassment. I was director of the New South Wales Working Women's Centre for seven years, which was a community legal centre that operated to deal with problems, to help to assist women with problems that they had in the workplace. And it was established to deal with the range of, of questions that people, women and their partners and their children sometimes, and their fathers a lot, especially around sexual harassment. Uh, and pregnancy and maternity leave inquiries. So, but we found ourselves increasingly dealing with sexual harassment as the years went on. Women react differently to sexual harassment, but 100 times out of 100, uh, women want it to stop. And part of a year ago, I would have, wouldn't have said that this was an incredibly important part of law reform around sexual harassment. And as you said, we'll talk about that more. And I think there are lots more fundamental things that we need to do in addition to examine defamation laws. But we know that the landscape has changed um, unalterably in the last year. And that is because, in my view, of the capacity for this to be something that women could talk about. And that occurred very directly as a consequence of women in the US being able to name their accuser in very populist environments and have that. And, and certainly whether they're believed or not is another question. But that capacity has changed how we in the developed economies who have you know, different laws the minutia is is very different in terms of how sexual harassment is dealt with. Um, but we are now naming it and talking about it outside women. And it just seems to me that for as long as I can remember, we've talked about it among each other with shame and with reticence. 
but in the last year we've named it. I should also say, Verity, that I'm on the board of Now Australia. That's an organisation that's been set up in response to Me Too and I, I don't think things have changed much in terms of legal systems and how these things are dealt with, but how we talk about it as women in the public sense has changed very much. So it's interesting to me, um, when I was speaking to Michael Cameron, he said that Weinstein couldn't have happened here. He said that, uh, you know, if we tried to report on that case in Australia, he would have sued the publisher and he would have been successful. So that tells me there's a problem I really, you know, after this breakfast, I rang a few politicians. I was really hoping someone would say, awesome, we need to change the defamation laws in Australia. Nothing. It was like throwing a stone in a pond. But I did run into your office, didn't I, uh, Noreen? Noreen and I work in the same area. And I ran and I said, quick, we need to form a lobby group to change defamation laws. And she humoured me, as she always does. And, you know, we've kept thinking about it. But you know, we need to put pressure on our politicians to recognise that this does not protect women and we need laws which protect women. OK, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Is it, is it true to say that Weinstein couldn't have happened in Australia? Because what was interesting about the New York Times case was that they'd spent 18 months meticulously getting him, basically. Like, they really were able, with presumably all of the resources that the New York Times has, to nail him. I sometimes think perhaps part of the problem as well as our defamation laws is that our media, A, either don't have the resources to do that sort of investigative journalism or, B, particularly in the tabloid areas of the media, just don't even bother to do it anyway. So, so my question, I suppose, I'm going to just go to Sophie. Do you think Weinstein could have happened in Australia if all that rigorous research had been done? Well, I think you can in Australia. Truth is defence. So if you can show it, if you're confident, you can show it substantially true. Then you can defend it. But that said, the it would be much harder to defend in Australia because in Australia you need people to come and give evidence than it is in the US, where because he's a public figure, you don't have to do that. In fact, you have to. He would have to establish malice before he could successfully sue anyone. So the bar here is much higher in terms of defending those sorts of allegations and it does probably change the extent to which those allegations are shared. So does that mean in his case he couldn't even... So there wouldn't be no calling of witnesses, there would be no getting women standing in the witness box having to prove the Weinstein? Well, because so long as it could be established that he was a public figure, um, it would be a matter for him to show malice. So it is a, a different ballpark but it remains the case that in Australia if you can prove the allegations to be true then you can defend a a defamation case. There's a very interesting question with stories involving sexual behaviour about our privacy laws as well because of course public interest used to be an element of the truth defence in some laws in Australia, in some defamation laws in Australia when they were all different but when they were unified in 2005 public interest was taken out as an element um, and and that meant that kiss and tell stories could be defended on the basis that they were true. Now, obviously, a sexual assault story is very different to a kiss and tell story. I'm not suggesting for a second that they're the same. But can I just ask a question of you then, Sophie? I get concerned about 
the lack of distinction made in public discussion sometimes between workplace sexual harassment and general bad behaviour. So this business at the moment of, you know, poor men being unfairly accused, the one that is being dealt with publicly in the US was at a private party, whereas what I deal with is workplace sexual harassment and they're two distinctly different things. So how do we, as a community that's dealing with this, make that, ensure that that distinction is made all of the time because the law is different in terms of private matters and workplace? The bright line standard that people are likely to, uh, that the courts are likely to apply. It's a standard that um, Gleeson yep. applied in Lena yep. Game Meets. He talked about something which would be highly offensive yes. to a, yep. a, a regional person of ordinary sensibilities. Yep. Yep. And those factors would come into play yep. um, as to whether there is a reasonable expectation of yep. privacy. Obviously, in the middle of a workplace, there's it's not. not. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So I now want to tackle the issue of social media because... Partly because here we have Jenna on the panel whose social media, Destroy the Joint, really has done significant things to highlight domestic violence and domestic homicide in this country. We look at Me Too, which has done enormous things to, I think as Noreen so aptly said, to actually just empower women to start speaking out. It's given a sense of community, global community, which I think has been extremely powerful. But of course legislating, or at least one of the big issues of legislating in the 21st century, is that our laws are bordered, but the need, we need to govern in unbordered spaces. So we have the capacity to try to control internet trolling or do what we can in that space, but of course it's a total global phenomenon. So in terms of social media, firstly, I might just start with Sophie to get a sense of where we're at and how we seek to govern this space already and then maybe get some comments from the panel about what should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of the way defamation law applies online in re relation to social media, the High Court's quite recently confirmed that the traditional principles apply in Australia. There's nothing, there are no special principles. And so essentially what happens is that an online platform and also um, search engines, because they participate in publishing material, it depends on the facts in each case, but in general they're going to cross the threshold necessary to be a party to publication for defamation law purposes. But they'll normally have what's called an innocent dissemination defence until they're notified of the defamatory content. And there's one case which suggests you've got a reasonable time after notification for them to take it down or to satisfy themselves that it's defensible. And, of course, for intermediaries, they find this um, of great concern because it means within Australia they're very much the gatekeepers for defamatory content. And for these privacy and other issues where they're having to sort of act as, as sort of judge and jury in relation to a lot of personal disputes. And it's, it puts us again in a different position to the US where Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act provides a great, a much higher level of immunity. But essentially how it works is if you notify them, then that will often result in it being taken down if someone's published something that is defamatory. But I think efforts are made by them not to do so unduly. But they're at risk of being successfully sued if they choose 
not but how to. How does an Australian sue Facebook? You know what I'm trying to say? The <laughs> Facebook or Twitter, is that even possible? Yeah, it is. There have been quite a few actions against um, you know, Google and, um, and others in Australia. There are complexities that I'm not going to get into about which entity needs, you know, is sued and in what circumstances. But the short answer is yes. The, the test under Australian, there are issues about enforcement of judgments. I don't want to get too technical. <laughs> but in general, because of the First Amendment in the US, American courts don't generally enforce foreign defamation judgments. So there can be issues, depending on who you're dealing with, about about getting a judgment here, whether the whether the foreign company is going to participate in the proceedings, whether if they choose not to pay, you'd be able to enforce it, yeah. particularly in the US, because it is something of a walled garden yeah. um, for those businesses, which does which is part of the quandary I think for us as a country as as to where we want to sit, um, because if we want to attract those sorts of businesses and be a hub for those sorts of discussions, then there's a good argument to, for reform. But by the same token, I mean, we've talked about, you know, victims in a Me Too situation being trolled. Yeah. Do we think that they should have remedies available to them? And, and in what circumstances? You know, it's not straightforward. Trolling is very real, very insidious, particularly towards women who express strong feminist opinions online. But presumably nodding everyone because <laughs> yes. yeah, incontrovertible, yeah. But presumably the remedies because trolls are mostly anonymous. I mean, what do you do? What is your view? So I'm sure I can use the word freaking useless on radio, um, on podcasts. So I've never had a useful response from anyone at a kind of reporting level. Fortunately, Facebook and Twitter have tools for people who have communities where you can go directly to people who are actually going to do something, that's very good. I, you know, in the very beginning of social media, when I first started tweeting about all these things, I used to really get upset. I'd engage with these people and then I thought to myself, they're nobodies, I'm allowed to have my view, I do not care what they think. I mean, this is a tip for all of you. Uh, tweet furiously but then don't um, get upset when people push back. That's normal. The thing is to not engage with people who don't have real names and real faces. In fact, if you can ring those people, that's good. I'd love to tell the story of um, a guy who was hassling me on Twitter and I eventually tracked down his real name and his work um, phone number and he worked with his wife and I rang his wife and I said, hello, I'm Jenna Price. You don't know me but your husband's doing this to me and she sorted him out. It was awesome. <laughs> Thing is, not everyone is insane enough to do that. Uh, not everyone has the really fantastic connections at Facebook and Twitter to be able to get the help. Uh, I do think platforms need to take more responsibility and I had to give evidence to a Senate inquiry into cyberbullying and I said the platforms have to do a better job because it's fine for me, I'm an old lady and I you know, can look after myself, you know, big shoulders, sharp elder, elbows, but... There are young women who are getting this every single day who do not know how to fight back, who do not know how to ring up and say, bugger off, who do not know how to get the, the partner on the phone and say, discipline your spouse. So, yeah, we need some tools in place, good tools organised by the platforms. Can I also just say that if publishers could... Well, Fairfax now does a brilliant job of comment moderation, but 
some of those comments. That thing about not reading the comments, people say that for a reason, people. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on on the internet that is poisonous and vile, and there are tools and remedies we could have which we do not have. Noreen, do you have anything to add on the social media front? Well, I'm a big fan of the preemptive block. I think as soon as you see that nutty comment, you just go, oh, yeah, whatever, see ya. But I was told mercilessly, um, Andrew Hennessy of Townsville, if you're listening, get a life <laughs> for about a year. Please give me his wife's phone number. Well, no. <laughs> what ring him? Well, no, what happened was I just blocked him and pretended it had gone away and he kept on, he had a nickname for me and he apparently, according to other people, he kept on tweeting about me. So a group of women got together who I don't know on Twitter and reported him to Twitter. But then about a year later, Kerry Sackville, who's a Twitter, who's on Twitter a lot, did a day of action where you could name and shame your... Anyway, so I name and shamed him. And then some men, some lovely men who are really good at these things, found his father on Facebook, right? You go to the relatives and that is how you sort them out. and And so I said, you know, aren't you ashamed of your son? Would you like this... To happen to your oh, parent shaming, right? never speak parent to her shaming. again. Well, it's never happened again, mind you. Then that irritating little teenager in Adelaide, Kayla Bond, came back to me and said, "How can you attack people's families?" I was like, "I don't, uh, Kayla. Please just go away." So you know, I think early in those early days, we all had someone nutty like that who had nothing better to do than sit around at night and write awful things about women. And I think most feminists who are active on social media had that. So I think that we've learnt. I think things have moved on and we've learnt better how to deal with it and I just reckon the preemptive block. All right. Now, I'm aware that there are audience members who may have some questions and so I am going to now throw it open to the floor. We have a roving mic. Would, uh, have I said, now that I've, said that, are there questions from the floor? Does anyone have a question to ask our esteemed panel? What I'm really interested in is how we um, can move away from the entire burden of having to, you know, prove these cases and, uh, you know, get changes around them, falling on individual women because I think that it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, we think we kind of talked about that before but are there things that we can do? And I know that some of the social media movements help do that, but I think ultimately they might make us feel better, but do they help us actually get justice? And I'm wondering if the panel has any ideas about that. That's Just for a really tricky one for you. That is a good question, Norena. You gave me the eye that you want to answer it. Well, I think that Joe is really right to ask that question and I think that will probably come from your experience in these things. And the coalface is very difficult because the processes and procedures are really difficult and haven't kept up. And and earlier when I was saying I think there's law reform work to be done that's far more immediate and far more, um, not important, but far more immediate than defamation laws, I think that, as we know, the processes have grown out of case law in the jurisdictions where they're heard. Those legislation, the legislative framework occurred 35 years ago and the world's changed a lot. I think that investigations are really problematic in, in terms of how those processes run. Uh, investigators aren't accredited. We really need to look at that. We really need to look at 
how the HR industry handles these matters because these things can change. They're not set in stone. Um, we need to have the discussion around law reform and um, a whole lot of suggestions that now Australia... Unions New South Wales have just written a really great paper. Um, we had a forum a, a month or so ago around it, but there are far more fundamental issues of law reform for women who are sexually harassed in workplaces than um, defamation laws, it seems to me. I've got, a, I guess, a question, probably more of a, a vague comment um, for Sophie. Um, it was around, um, so, defamation cases and the idea that, you know, truth is a, a defence, so perhaps a case like Weinstein's could get up in Australia if, you know, we could prove that it's true. Um, I mean, I guess my I, I had a concern um, in the sense that we know that sexual harassment and sexual violence cases are so difficult to establish um, and to, you know, to prove that they're true. I mean, I'm assuming that there's a lower burden of, burden of proof in civil cases, but, um, yeah, is it, I, I guess, is it actually the case that truth would be a defence? Would it still serve these women? Like, would they actually be able to establish that their experiences were true to the standard required? Well, you're right that the burden of proof is different in a civil case. It's interesting where um, it's an imputation of criminal conduct. It's actually, it's the Brigginshaw test, so it's a little bit above the normal balance of probabilities test. But there are lots of cases of defamation cases where people have become unstuck because they've felt confident because they've successfully defended criminal proceedings and so they've cheerfully sued people for... Um, defamation over the same allegations only to find that truth is established in the defamation proceeding. Um, and wow. defamation proceedings are not cheap to run, so that can be pretty financially devastating where that occurred. A lot of that occurred after the Woodrow Commission, actually. Lots of police um, who had been the subject of allegations in that commission sued various media outlets over stories written okay. about them. You have been listening to After Me Too, stories of social change. I'm Ollie Henderson. Our host is Verity Firth from the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS. And I just want to thank all of our panellists today. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. I want to really thank 2SER. 2SER is a magnificent radio station here at UTS. We've partnered with them for this podcast. I want to particularly thank Miles Herbert and Ollie Henderson, and all of the wonderful 2SER crew here today, including Mel, ex-managing director, um, because it really has been a wonderful... I especially wanted to give a shout-out to our producer, Nina Kopel, and Laura Oxley from the Centre for pulling this whole event together, and to Lachlan Cole for handling the sound recording on the day. If you haven't listened back to our previous episodes, please go back and check it out. And subscribe. This is our last episode of After Me Too, but we are currently working on the next edition of our Stories for Social Change series. And we're going to continue to do this. We're going to continue to produce podcasts with 2SER addressing exactly these issues, stories of social change and how we maintain the rage, as Jenna has just so aptly. I can't give away too much right now, but it'll be coming out really soon on this channel. So please stay subscribed. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening. So thanks again, everybody, and have a wonderful evening.